Thank you, Father, for the turn of weather we've had back to our typical warm winters or so we're used to having, Father. I thank you for that. It uh, kind of warms the heart to, uh, to see the weather turn in our favor. Thank you, Lord, for those who can be here who, in some cases, we've had sickness passing through and travels and, and other family issues, Lord, and that continues even now for those, many of those in the fellowship. But I thank you, Lord, that in each week you found uh, the providence to bring just the number we need, whoever they may be. Thank you, Lord, that we can meet, that we can edify and encourage one another as you see fit and in your plan. And, Father, I thank you that we have a call to take what we learn in the word of God and to use it, that you have determined to rely upon men and women in service to you. Though you don't need us, Father, and your power transcends anything we could bring to the relationship, nonetheless, you have chosen to use us. What an awesome opportunity it is, Father, to please you as servants working to serve a master who is good and faithful and just. Father, don't let us squander those opportunities. Don't let us let them pass by. And, and Father, I pray that through the word this morning there be an exhortation for each of us to serve you better, to love you more, to please you in greater ways, to seek the lost in your name, to witness to the truth that you've revealed to us. Father, I pray that one of these or all of these are on our hearts after we leave this morning, Father. And I pray the word would be the instrument to cause that change. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, we're coming to the end of something and to the beginning of something new. We're really ending the heart of this letter. This is the middle section of the letter of Hebrews. It runs from about chapter 7 to 10, where we are today in 10. And it forms the writer's central argument. Now, before we review anything, let's just acknowledge something that I know is on your mind, because it would have to be. The honest truth is, this has been a long, challenging walk through this section of the letter. And it's because it's so centrally focused on Christian doctrine. Doctrine is tough stuff. It doesn't hold your attention the same way jokes and funny stories do. Right? It doesn't have the potential to excite us the way inspiring accounts of bravery on the mission field will have. I get that. But friends, doctrine lies at the center, at the very core of why we even call ourselves Christian. It's what we believe. In fact, One of the series I teach elsewhere is know what you believe, which sounds a bit oxymoron at first. But in reality, it's exactly the Christian experience. Doctrine is the heart of the Christian faith. And in the case of this writer, his concern has been on the doctrine of the new covenant, the sufficiency of Christ in all respects, on his better priesthood, on the better tabernacle where he lives to make intercession and on the better sacrifice by which we've been sanctified. In my limited skills, there's no fun way to go through that doctrine and do it justice. And unfortunately for for many of us, it is a chore, a work. But you remember how the writer started this long section. Remember in chapter five when he was chastising this church and he says he had things to teach that were going to be difficult to understand because they had become slow of hearing or lazy of hearing. He even acknowledged at the outset, this stuff is tough. But then he went on to say that the failure of the church in not being ready to hear it was a shame to them and was potentially a pitfall for them. So we we acknowledge up front these are weighty concepts and there aren't many Christians who are willing to make the trip through this kind of stuff, through this doctrine and theology. And yet 
It is the pinnacle of Christian maturity that you and I are able to understand these things. And the Bible is very clear that as Christians, we are called to seek for spiritual maturity, not to be content with being babes in Christ. Because when the enemy is attacking us in our life through disease, through trials, through emotional issues, when the enemy goes after us, and he does, and he will, or when false teachers come our way, when people on bicycles and little nice jackets knock on our door, or when that helpful friend at work wants to invite us to this new religion that's just started up and it's really fun and it's exciting, when those things come into our life, and they will, when the enemy's trying to fool you into forfeiting your hope in Christ, what's going to save us in those circumstances? What's going to protect us? In those moments, it is going to be your knowledge of doctrine, which ultimately will preserve your joy and your confidence. It's your knowledge of what comes after death that can preserve you through a trial of death. It's your knowledge of the eternal body that is promised that will bring you through a trial of sickness in your body and so on. The work to understand doctrine is hard. We all know that. But to the Christian who sets his or her mind on that work, the reward will be much greater. Because the Bible says that your reward for seeking spiritual maturity is both peace and joy now and reward in the eternal realm. And nothing you will receive in eternity, you can trust me, nothing you will receive is worth sacrificing for any distraction we might choose to engage in now instead of strong doctrine. There's the story of an elderly lady who was traveling much like we heard from Marie and Dave this morning, she was traveling to a remote jungle area as part of a vacation with a tour group. And when she encountered some natives there, she struck up a conversation with one of the men and she noticed that he was wearing this very curious necklace. So he asked him about his necklace and she said, what's it made of? And he said, it's made of alligator teeth and trying to be culturally relevant and trying to sort of fit in with the culture, she said, oh, I'm supposing that for you, alligator teeth are as valuable as pearls are for us. And he said, oh, no, he said, anybody can open an oyster. (laughs) Anyone, anyone can learn Sunday school stories about the Bible and anyone can play on the edges of Christian maturity. We can all fake it to a degree, but the real prize awaits those who can explain the foundational doctrines of our faith. And that's why this writer says, now at the part of his doctrine here at the end of chapter 10, that's why he's now explaining concerning the sacrifices that we don't need any new sacrifice in order to maintain our relationship with God. The one-time death of Christ on the cross is enough. It should be enough, because it is enough. And so now he sums up his teaching. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to Look at a summary that he offers on this final point on the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice, followed by an entry into the fourth warning of the letter. Now, if you remember, this letter is demarcated by five warnings as you see them throughout the text. We've done the first three. It's been a while since we've heard one because he's been so engaged in this buildup of doctrine and doctrine and doctrine. But now at the end, he's going to point out that if this doctrine is beyond our grasp or more to the point, If our obedience doesn't line up with what we know, there's a consequence, and he covers that. So let's begin with that summary, verses 10 through 18 of chapter 10. The writer says, by this will, referring to Christ's will, by this will, we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest 
stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart and and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, this is a summary, as I said. And so, therefore, as a summary, I'm not going to belabor, uh, hopefully I won't belabor, the same points we've seen covered up to this point, because the writer is finishing an argument. But nevertheless, he makes some new statements here as well, and they're worth a moment of our time, of course. He begins in verse 10 with this powerful refutation against anyone who would argue that you need to do works to be saved. And you can write this down. In fact, I would underline chapter 10, verse 10, as a quick way to refute those who would come to your door, as some will do, and claim that on top of what Christ does for us, we must then also accomplish some good works on our own. Because look what the writer says. The writer says that by the perfect, by the perfect obedient will of Christ, we have been, past tense, sanctified. Now, the will he's referring to is what we talked about last week. Jesus' obedience to the Father, doing what the Father asked him to do by dying on the cross, that perfect will, and of course leading up to that, his sinless life, all of his obedience, then earned him the right to be a sinless sacrifice on our behalf. His perfection earned us our salvation. And then it says that perfection has been, past tense, applied in sanctifying us. Now, the word sanctify there is just a word that means to be set apart for holiness, to be set apart, made acceptable to God in holiness. So I want you to notice there's a key connecting series of words in the middle of that phrase that make the whole thing come together. He says, once for all. Be sure to circle that phrase, once for all. The sacrifices of a perfect God-man in our place, done once, suffices for all. You can't improve on perfection, friends. You can't do more than 100%. If one man's death did all that was required to sanctify us, that's 100% of what had to be done. Then for those who would argue that, well, yes, but there's something you have to add to that, your response needs to be once for all. Past tense, sanctified. Where do I add anything to a formula that's already at 100%? You cannot. That's the logic you need to remember. I'll tell you there are those that you've probably encountered already or will encounter that will argue differently. The Catholic faith, the Catholic faith says that, yes, you need the grace of God in Christ, but then you must also become perfect in your own right. You must work yourself to perfection on top of what Christ did. But it begs the question, why did Christ die at all then if I still have to become perfect? If you say Christ's perfection was not enough to satisfy the Father, then we, being imperfect, have no hope to satisfy God, do we? I mean, it would argue against any possibility. If one perfect man isn't enough, then what good did it do to add a bunch of imperfect people on top of him? On the other hand, if the sacrifice of a sinless man is enough, according to Hebrews 10.10, then there can't be any value 
in additional sacrifices because 100% is 100%. So you and I can have confidence to rest entirely on the sacrifice of Christ for the sake of our sin. And so the writer then goes one last time in making a comparison between the old covenant and the new so that he can reinforce the fact that it is in the new that everything is realized that the old was looking forward to. He says, consider the way the priests of the old used to perform their service to God in the earthly tabernacle. They stood at all times during their daily shift as they presided over endless numbers of animal sacrifices. I want you to notice if you've seen any of the design of the tabernacle, if you've studied the tabernacle design out of, say, maybe Exodus, there's one key piece of furniture that's common to most buildings, certainly, that you will not find anywhere in the tabernacle. Do you know what that piece of furniture is? Did you say toilet? (laughs) See me after class, because I don't. Although you're right, there wasn't a toilet. There's no chair. There's no chair. You had to work in there all day long. You had nowhere to sit. Why? Because you're not supposed to sit. Because in their culture, to sit down was reserved for those who have finished their work. And as a sign, as an indication to the priesthood of Israel that you will never finish this work, not under this covenant. God didn't even put a chair in the building. They stood, it says, all day long sacrificing because... None of those sacrifices ever put an end to sin. It is because sin perpetuated and was never fully addressed that the sacrifices kept coming. It was just a big billboard to Israel and to the world that you will not find satisfaction in anything you can do by the work of your hands. You can't kill enough animals to satisfy my wrath against your sin. And yet, he says, Christ... When he died in our place, he was then welcomed into the heavenly realm where he had come from originally. And the father permitted him to sit down at his right hand, at the father's right hand, which, as we said last week, means he has finished the work of redemption. There is no more sacrifice. There's no more work required. All that is required has been done. Friends, it stands to reason that if the father let the son sit down, then the father is showing evidence that he was satisfied with the work of his son. If he thought there was anything more that had to be done, he would have told his son, stay standing. You're the high priest. You can't sit down until the work of redemption is done. We're the priests, right? We're told in, in the New Testament under Peter that we are part of a royal priesthood. If we are the priests and he is our high priest and the work of redemption is not finished for us, then none of us, not even Christ himself, would be allowed to sit because the job still would be going on. That's the the logic of what it means to sit versus to stand. When he sat down, the father was saying, son, you're done. And if our high priest is done, then we're done. Take special note of verse 14, which is really the climactic moment of this argument. From the writer's point of view, he says, by one offering, that is of Christ, of course, the Father has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, this is such a great verse, and it works best, in my experience, if you read it backwards. And this is what I mean. Let's just understand it backwards. He starts with those who are being sanctified. That refers to a group of people across history. And if you notice, it's in the present participle. Now, if that, that brings back horrors from English class, don't worry, I'm not going to drag you through all of grammar again. But present participles mean continuous action, present tense continuous action. So you have here those 
who are being set apart or being sanctified. That's a group of people who are being set apart for holiness, being chosen by God to become sinless and perfect as he is. And it is a present participle because it's not ended yet. It happened yesterday. It's happening today. It's going to happen tomorrow. There are people coming into the faith continuously. They're being sanctified, as that phrase says. And so we begin at the end there. The Father has a group of humanity being sanctified. And then it says that perfection, that sanctification, it says, will last for all time. It's a permanent, eternal sanctification. Once you become part of the family of God, you never leave it. And it's a one-way trip from where you are to glorification and into eternity. And then at the beginning of that verse, he says, this journey that starts on the day that you confess Christ and matures until you reach him in face-to-face in glory and then goes on from there, that journey made possible, he says, by one offering, Christ. There's no other means by which you and I are being brought into that perfection, not by your works, Not by another's sacrifice or works, not by your participation in a religious ritual, not by Oak Hill Bible Church membership, not by any other thing, but the sacrifice of Christ in your place. Right. This is basic core Christian doctrine. Now, if I'm hammering this so much now that you've said, hey, I got this 10 minutes ago, much less 10 weeks ago. Well, good, good. But it might surprise you how many Christians who supposedly got this will someday later fall prey to false teaching that leads them to think, oh, wait a minute, there was something else. And it's stunning. I mean, the whole reason that you have the quintessential American fraud of Mormonism is because some guy could come along and convince whole generations of people in his day and in the days that have followed that there was something missing, that it wasn't delivered once for all to the saints, as Jude says, that it wasn't a one sacrifice for all time, as Hebrews says. But no, there was something more. And guess what? I've got that something for you. The only reason you're open to that argument is because you haven't understood how you became saved in the first place. Once again, the plan of salvation was something announced in advance by the prophets, even in the Old Covenant, in this sense that the Old Covenant stipulated that priests had to keep doing something continually so as to make the point that this ain't the solution. The only reason that was announced is because God said, I'm going to bring something better in the future. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 31, which we heard read this morning in whole. But in this case, he's quoting from a part of Jeremiah 31 in verses 16 and 17. That prophet said a new covenant would come to Israel, ultimately to all the nations, and that the Lord gave in that covenant a promise. This new covenant will not be like the old, that it will be different. How? Well, it'll be different in that this new covenant will allow the Lord to not remember your sins any longer. Under the old covenant, he did continue to remember men's sins. It wasn't by the old covenant that sins were forgotten, but it will be under the new. And then he ends in verse 18. If the new covenant has the capacity to leave God with no memory of your sin, well, then it stands to reason there won't be any more need for sacrifices for that same reason, right? If God doesn't remember your sin, he doesn't need new sacrifices then. That's why the new covenant does not require further sacrifice, because there is one done that did all that was needed. Now, that ends his teaching on the doctrine of the new covenant. He's gone from the priesthood, he's gone then to the tabernacle and its service, and now he's ended with the sacrifice. Now, once you lay out a bunch of doctrine, what do you do with that? As a teacher, hopefully you turn the crowd, the the readers attention in this case, 
away from the doctrine and onto themselves for just a moment. There's a simple little structure for studying the Bible that you've probably heard before that says you should always begin by observing the text or reading it in our case, looking at the details of it. Move then to interpreting the text, to understanding what the writer was trying to say. But then it follows from that to applying or application of the text. A lot of people do the first one. Very few people anymore do the second one, in my experience. And if you do jump to the third one, it's usually wrong because you haven't done the second one. And, and what we want to do is see how the writer has moved now into application. That's where he goes now. It starts in verse 19. So this is an exhortation, or in simple words, this is a call to action based on what you just learned about the doctrines of our faith. Verse 19. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, this exhortation is the first of three that I affectionately call the let us invitations. And by let us, I'm not saying a salad, but let us. And you notice he says that in verse 22, let us draw near. He's going to follow that with two more let us's. Is that even a word? No. So here's the first one. Draw near to Christ. Draw near. That phrase in Greek to draw near is commonly used back in the time of the writer as a call to worship. Draw near to God was a way of inviting people into the worship moment. The first one is an exhortation to worship Christ in confidence, knowing that this pleases the Father. Now, what worship means in this context is a broader term than the way we typically use it today. In, in the way it's typically used today, we think of it as the time of the service when we sing songs. That's not wrong. I mean, I don't mean to say we have to stop saying that. But don't think that narrowly now as you look at the text. He's talking about what Paul, I think, means when he writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we should make our lives a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, right? That our whole life is devoted to worship of God in faith, in trust of Christ. So he says, worshiping Jesus brings you into the holy of holies. And what he's saying is this, that true heavenly tabernacle that we've described already that exists in heaven right now, the one in which Christ presides as high priest, when you and I approach Christ in worship, it is literally as if we are walking into the Holy of Holies in that place by the blood of Christ, by the fact that he opened that door for us through the death of his body on the cross. We are literally walking in there. How so? Well, because our representative is in there. He is there in our place, winning favor for us at the right hand of God. You and I may be sitting in this little building here in southwest Austin, on a given Sunday, worshiping, or maybe you're doing it at home in some other context or in a prayer moment in your bedroom. But friends, when you direct your heart toward God in thanks and adoration, because of your relationship with Christ, you are, spiritually speaking, entering the holiest place in all creation, at least in that moment. You are literally standing before the Father. And more importantly, He is hearing you. He is paying attention to you. He's attending to you. And the writer says, He is pleased with you in the sense that he has forgotten your sin and he welcomes you into his presence, all because of the perfection of Christ, not because of your own merit. Because of Christ, you are assured that audience. Now, let me be clear. You're not assured that you get what you ask for, 
right? You're not assured that just because you want something, it comes your way. That wouldn't be goodness from the father. Good parents don't give their children everything they want. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The mere fact that you can even be there, though, to put your petitions in front of the Lord is the point. It's everything. So he says, when you know this to be true, because you've got all that doctrine now, hopefully bouncing around in your head, even if it's not all immediately recallable. The writer says, because of everything you see in Scripture, you have every reason to engage in sincere and confident worship of Christ. All the prophecy lines up. All the facts are there. Everything you've been told has come true. There's no reason for any doubt. Don't toy with thoughts of of other ways to heaven. Don't give room for false teaching. You know it. You know, you know what you know. And even if you can't always explain it, even if you're not articulate enough to make the debate every time someone raises a, a contrary opinion, it doesn't change what you know. You may not be able to argue someone else, but you know where you stand. And then he says in verse 22, our own experience tells us these things are true. From your own experience, he says, you experience, for example, as a believer, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the moment you came to faith. That is the literal moment when your heart inclined toward the gospel and you felt the repentance of a life lived apart from God and you accepted the truth of the gospel. Whenever that happened to you, that was the literal moment that the Holy Spirit indwelled you, which is the phrase the Bible calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You were immersed in him, in other words, and you became born again. You know that moment. Now, you may not have had one of those moments where you came down to the front of a church in tearful repentance and fell on the ground and dramatically gave your life to Christ, although we know people probably, who, who have done that. Maybe it's more like me, where I heard the gospel, it made an impression, and then it took a series of weeks, maybe even months, before everything sort of came together for me in a moment. And once I understood it in that moment, then it all sort of lined up, and I agreed with it. And I can look back on how I got there, and I saw the progression, but I never had the one cathartic moment. It doesn't make it any less real. It doesn't make it any less meaningful. Somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit came upon me, and it just took me a while to catch up. And that's often the way it is in my experience with a lot of people. Either way, we know it. We remember it. And then the writer says something very, very powerful, at least to me. He says that's not what happened under the old covenant. He talks here about the fact that we were granted a clean conscience. But do you remember back earlier last week when we read that he said that those sacrifices of the old covenant never provided a clean conscience to the worshipers? You remember that? That's the contrast. You take for granted how you feel right now, right? You walk out of this building confident that you're going to heaven when you die. You're aware of your sin. Hopefully you're being convicted on it on a regular basis, and that's helping you walk away from it progressively. But yet, even though you know you're sinful, you're not losing any sleep at night wondering if that's going to keep you out of heaven. Not if you know the gospel, right? You're already past that point. You're thankful. Hallelujah, right? I mean, it's the thing that gives you joy. But friends, that feeling is foreign to those who practiced under the Old Covenant. Now, there were saints in the Old Covenant time. There were Old Testament saints, and by faith in the promise of a Messiah, they were equally cleansed. But what the writer is saying is, just because you participated in the Old Covenant didn't cleanse your sin, didn't take away that feeling of guilt, didn't give you a sense of confidence. You had to have faith in the promises of God if you were to get to that point. No different than now. But unlike the old covenant where you could participate in the covenant but not know salvation, now in the new covenant there is no option for that. Everyone who is in the new covenant by faith knows the benefits of it. 
There's no potential, as it were, to be an unbeliever in the new covenant. But you could have been an unbeliever in the old, because the old wasn't the means to salvation. That's the writer's point. So for his audience, in his day, there were those who were retreating into the old covenant and repeating the sins of participation in the old, having come into the new. And for that group, he says, that's crazy. Why go back to something that never met the needs in the first place? And he says, finally, in the end of verse 22, he says, our profession of faith through a water baptism was the moment when we took a stand with Christ. We professed our faith publicly. He says, you know the feeling, you know the moment, you know the truth of it. Let us use that as confidence to draw near. And then look at his second let us. He says, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All right, now we're going to reach the the real concern this writer had, going all the way back to chapter 5. This is his main concern. This is why he set out on this doctrine. He's concerned that some in the church are wavering in their confession. Now, let's be clear on what he's talking about. We're talking about Christians who entered into the covenant by faith, but now they're wavering. And by that, he means they're doubting whether the new covenant was truly sufficient to save them. And as a result, as they wavered, they were choosing, in some cases, to return to the Old Covenant and to practice sacrifices in the Jewish temple, which was still standing at the time this letter was written. Now, why would they do that? Well, we have to make some assumptions based on what the writer has said, but it appears as though the cause of their wavering was a lack of understanding of the doctrines of the New Covenant. I mean, it's it's just that simple. They came to faith, as all do, in an infant moment, without a full understanding of doctrine, by the power of the Holy Spirit, But now, because they haven't matured, they're susceptible to false teaching. That's why the writer began in chapter 6 about telling them that they had need again for the basic principles of the Word of God, of oracles of God. And now, friends, you can see just how far that ignorance, that immaturity has taken them, at least in the case of some. They're retreating from a proper worship of Christ. And don't miss that connection. If we fail to pursue spiritual maturity, we are bound to falling back in one way or another to one trap or another of the enemy. We are just ripe to be knocked off, so to speak. You see that in churches today. There's a lot of forms of false worship. Things that are said that are uh, to be happening by the Holy Spirit that are not actually happening by the Holy Spirit. Things that people are said to be able to do, things that are that are said to be able to happen in the room, and it's a nice display, and it's very impressive, and it's all counter to the doctrines of the New Testament, and therefore they're false. That's a false form of worship. How did that start? Because someone doesn't understand their Bible. Don't miss that connection. Knowing doctrine is your defense. And that leads the writer to his final exhortation and our final point for the morning. Verse 24 and 25. The last, let us, he says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, the fight for the truth and the fight against the schemes of the enemy is not a war that we wage alone. So the writer says, even as you consider the need to draw near in sincerity, and even as you consider not wavering in your convictions of your faith, he said, you ought not be thinking about this just for your own sake. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another concerning these same things. And he says specifically to love and to good deeds. 
The power of a strong Christian community, one that's based in the truth of Scripture, is in its ability to encourage one another when you're hurting or when you're discouraged or when you're at your weakest or when you're being swayed by false teaching or whatever may come your way. He says a healthy community of believers is going to prompt you and I to grow and then challenge us to set our sin aside. And in all of this to become more Christ like and to be built up against the schemes of the enemy. But notice in 25, the writer says there were some who were forsaking the gathering or assembling together. And what he means very simply is there had become a pattern in the church, in the early church in the diaspora, for some to say, you know what, I don't need to come to what we today would call church anymore. Or a smaller setting, maybe a home group as we would call it today. I don't need that stuff anymore. But they weren't just doing it like we think of. This isn't just the matter of laziness, although that's a part of it, right? Getting out of the habit. The problem, though, is they said, I don't need that gathering because I have the temple service. I don't need that Because I have what I've become accustomed to in my Jewish traditions. Why did they return to that old system? Well, because they failed to mature in their understanding of the new. I mean, if you honestly understand what you've been given in the new covenant, nothing else will appeal to you. But because you don't understand it, you're open to being swayed to do something different. And then I do think there was an element in there that fell out of the routine of assembling together. It doesn't come up specifically in the text. I'm only making that assumption But it would make sense to me that if you're not compelled by your knowledge of the doctrine to be a part of the gathering, not just for your own sake, but so that you can help others, if that's not on your mind, then honestly, friends, what is there really in this for you? I mean, you're having to suffer through it. No amens on that, please. It drags on and the guy's so long winded and I got the point or you don't even understand what he's talking about. And the game is about to start and whatever's on your mind, right? There are no good reasons to be here, honestly, unless from a doctrinal point of view, you understand what's at stake eternally for your own spiritual growth, for the sake of your spiritual growth. If you think it's just about a moment or about showing your face or about keeping up good appearances or the donuts, be honest, for some of us, it's just the donuts. If that's all this is about. You're not going to stick with it. Not all the time. There'll be a Sunday here and there where you find good reason not to come. And that'll turn into two Sundays and that'll turn into a month of Sundays. And next thing you know, it's been so long now they don't even miss me. What are the benefits? I mean, let's let's be real. What are the benefits? Look what the writer says at the end of that passage I read. He says, we should do this all the more. Encourage one another into love and good deeds. That's a way of saying into the love of the brethren. And into doing service to one another, to being a committed part of that body. He says, let's do this. And then at the end, he says, and all the more as the day is drawing near. That's his point. It's subtle, but it's right there. What's he mean when he talks about a day that's drawing near? He's talking about the day of our judgment. The day in which we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In which the work of our life in service to Christ will be evaluated, as Paul describes in in 1 Corinthians 3. And in that judgment comes a response from Christ, which determines our eternal reward, according to Paul. It's a sobering thing to consider because it's supposed to be. It's a moment in which the work of our life is evaluated. Now, it's not a decision as to whether we go to heaven or not. We've covered this in the past. I'll repeat it here now. It's not a matter of your salvation. That's settled on the cross. But that doesn't mean there isn't still a judgment coming. And that doesn't mean the judgment doesn't have consequences. And it is real. And the writer says, with that day drawing near every day, 
Right. It's, it's a self-evident truth that every day you're a day closer to that judgment. Right. Wherever you live in history, because it's drawing near, he says, that's all the more reason for us to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Why? Because we know that that's the chance for each of us to receive the best possible judgment from our Lord. If we truly love one another in the body of Christ, we're not content with merely the fact that we work really hard and and we'll get a good reward or so we hope. That's not enough. I am just as bothered by the fact that John's not doing enough in service to the Lord or in obedience to the word of God. And so I'm going to work hard to stimulate him to good work, to love and good deeds, as the writer says, because because that's why I'm here for him. And one day he'll be there for me. But if some are falling away from the faith, losing their confidence, failing to assemble, we run after those people, not for appearances sake, but because we know there's a judgment waiting for them. And we love them too much to let them face that judgment with a poor record. That's the point of this gathering. That's the point. We're building ourselves up for that outcome. Friends, we know not all believers will heed this advice. We know that. Some believers will be enticed into false worship. Some will simply just abandon any observance at all. They're either lazy of hearing, they're entrapped by something that's caught their attention, whether it's materialism or careerism or destructive addictions or whatever comes along that the enemy can use to get us thinking that this is secondary to whatever the world offers. I get that. We've all been there. And some of us may be there now. All of those dangers risk diminishing our witness And therefore, our eternal reward. So because of that reality, next week, we study the fourth warning, which begins in verse 26, where the writer is going to spell out, if you continue, if we continue not to draw near, not to remain confident, not to stimulate one another into loving good deeds, what will be the consequence? He spells that out. Now, it's sort of a downer ending. Don't like those if I can avoid them. But let me say this, if it leaves you a bit sober, but it results in more obedience to the Lord, that's a trade-off I can live with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for our opportunities this morning to, um, to hear the, the exhortation of this writer. Stimulate us, Father, by the work of your Spirit to be obedient to what we learn, to take doctrine and understand it, to take commands of, uh, from the Lord and obey them, And to make love our overriding goal in all that we do, Father. Love for you, love for your son, and love for those who know you and those who don't. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.